right, hello um, again. My name is Suzanne Nasser, and I am a full-time faculty member in the Counseling and Career Development Center. On behalf of the Arab Heritage Month Committee, which consists of myself, Sundasmati McCarthy, Nina Shoman-Dajani, Kip Kozad, Tamima Farooqi, Rana Judah, Kashif Shah, and Shada Farooq, I'd like to welcome you all to today's event, the Arab Arab American Experience Author Conversation and Reading featuring Sahar Mustafa and Naveen Shaibna. Before I turn it over to our amazing and talented authors, Sahar and Naveen, I'd like to thank the Celebrating Diversity Task Force and Moraine Valley for giving us the opportunity year after year to celebrate Arab Heritage Month. I'd also like to thank Troy Swanson and all the library faculty and staff for hosting our events every year in this awesome space. For those of you that are unfamiliar with Arab Heritage Month, it has been celebrated here in Chicago since 1991, when the Advisory Council on Arab Affairs successfully lobbied the City Council to honor Arab heritage during the month of November. How many of you knew that? Did you all know that November is a dedicated month for Arab Heritage Month? No? Okay, well now you do, right? So the month was created to help eliminate discrimination, bigotry, and racism against people of Arab descent by educating the public about Arab culture, civilization, and contributions to society. It is also an opportunity for us as Arabs to rejoice about who we are and to take great pride in our rich culture, history, and traditions especially at this difficult time in which Arabs and Muslims are criminalized, scapegoated, and politically attacked every day. We all know there is a huge number of Arab students here, and Moraine Valley has had a long-standing tradition of participating in Arab Heritage Month and supporting this population. Every year, my colleagues and I, along with our hardworking Arab Student Union members and Muslim Student Association members, look forward to celebrating this month on campus with all of you. It has afforded us the opportunity to put together numerous educational, social, and political events. We are super excited today to have both Sahar and Naveen, two creative Arab-American female writers who, like writers from other immigrant groups, focus on themes of cultural conflict, family, and political identity. Please note that we are selling Sahar and Naveen's books today. Um, our awesome bookstore staff are here to help us with that. But if you don't have the means today to purchase their books, please feel free to stop in the bookstore um, and get your copy there. Uh, we will have them available there as well. And now, without further ado, I'd like to give a brief introduction of our authors and then turn it over to them. We will have an opportunity at the end for Q&A, and if you would like them to sign your books, they would be happy to do so. So I'm going to start with Sahar, who is directly to my left. The daughter of Palestinian immigrants, Sahar Mustafa, is, draw is drawn to stories of the silenced and invisible. Her stories have earned a distinguished story citation from Best American Short Stories 2016 and two Pushcart Prize nominations, among other honors. Her work recently appears in two countries, Daughters and Sons of U.S. Immigrants. She is a longstanding member of Radius of Arab American Writers, for which she previously served as treasurer, as well as a, as well as a 2015 Voices of Our Nation fellow. She also served with Voices of Protest, 
an artist collaboration begun by Chicago's Guild Literary Complex, which she seeks to promote the work of exiled writers and artists worldwide through the International City of Refuge Network. As an educator of over 20 years, she enjoys facilitating creative writing workshops for youth, most recently through the Arab American Action Network in Chicago. Earlier this month, she was, she was a featured reader at the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and is co-founder of Bird's Thumb, an online literary magazine devoted to new and emerging voices. Welcome, Sahar. And right next to her is Naveen Shaabna, who is a novelist, public speaker, and educator. Ms. Shaabna's roots stretch thousands of miles from Chicago to Palestine, where she was born. Ms. Shaabna graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago with a bachelor's in English education and from St. Xavier with a master's of arts. Ms. Shaabna publicly speaks on matters relating to Muslims in America, the Arab American experience, the Muslim women's narrative, on matters relating to diversity and inclusion, the writing process, minority voices in writing, and is a key contributor in interfaith discussions and diversity training. She serves as a consultant for the Muslim Women's Alliance, as well as for the youth programs at the Orland Park Community Center. Mishayabna has worked with several religious institutions and served on dozens of committees in her community to assist in community building, diversity education, and establishing acceptance. She has spoken at several universities, including the University of Illinois at Chicago, DePaul University, St. Xavier, University of Vermont, and many others. She is pleased to add Moraine Valley to her list. Mishayabna's debut novel, Secrets Under the Olive Tree, has sold worldwide with a far-reaching, excuse me, with a far-reaching reader base. She currently finished her second novel. She is a proud mother of three children and believes in the importance in investing in our youth. She works closely with youth programs and trains young leaders to use their voice for change. She inspires expression and social action through speaking and writing. Ms. Shaibna has taught high school English for 15 years and remains, I understand some of our students here know you, yes, and remains a staunch advocate in the power of literature and the arts. She believes, quote, Real literature, great literature, moves people, and to never underestimate the power of a good story. Thank you, Naveen. So what I'd like to do now is we're gonna start with Sahar, um, who's going to do a brief reading, um, and then we'll turn it over to Naveen, who will also do a brief reading. Uh, we will then open it up for questions and answers. Um, so thank you all for being here. Thank you, Ms. Mahaswaisa-Babina, for bringing your class, Mr. Kip Kozad, and to anybody else who also brought their students. Thank you, Suzanne, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Moraine Valley, for hosting us. Uh, this is really incredible. I feel like um, most times Arabs, Muslims, gather to grieve, to protest, and we're celebrating Arab heritage here. And I think it's incredible that um, this institution, you know, advocates and supports that. So awesome. And thank you. I feel really privileged to be in this space. Um, just really quickly, so um, I wrote a collection of short stories um, as part of my thesis work at Columbia College. So I'm I'm really uh, privileged to uh, have have them all in one collection, and uh, you know, in 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 
the hands of people who have purchased it. Um, so this is a collection that spans two countries, here and Palestine. And I'm going to read a short story called Perfect Jeans. I'm wearing a plastic Wonder Woman mask and the matching vinyl costume that kids in the 70s wore over their clothes with those strings you tied in the back like a hospital gown. My younger brother Mahdi, the Incredible Hulk, is standing next to me, clutching the handle of his trick-or-treat pumpkin basket while I hold his, hand, his free hand. There's a crack in his mask, like a jagged scar running down his forehead. And I smile now, holding the photograph and remembering that my mother had sat on it moments before he put it on. We are posed on the porch of a neighbor's bungalow just as she's opening the door, and she's cradling a bowl of candy in the crook of her arm. If you look closely at the photograph, you can see a glare from the old woman's cat eyeglasses. My brother and I are bathed in the warm autumn sunlight on Chicago's south side. Found it, I call from my mother's basement, placing the photograph on the floor beside me. I'm sitting on folded legs, and before me is an old Hoover vacuum box that reaches almost four feet in height. It is nearly full to the top with photographs. A combination of mildew and dust permeate the brown marble-colored carpet. I pull out a few Kodak instants stuck together from humidity and peel them apart. I purchased those pretty storage boxes from Michael's craft store to help my mother organize the photographs. She insists she doesn't have time. Most of our childhood has been similarly neglected. My old Barbies, some naked, some in formal dress attire, are heaped on top of each other in a large black hefty bag. Mehdi's Garbage Patch Kids collector cards are mixed up with his kindergarten drawings in an old trapper keeper that belonged to me in the fourth grade. Report cards are nowhere to be found. When do I have time to organize pictures? My mother demands. How can I do anything else around here besides cooking and cleaning? My mother has spent years taking our picture, but no time arranging the snapshots and albums. When we were kids, she drove us to Pixie's Drugstore on 55th and California to develop each roll of film. Mehdi and I took turns holding the small capsule with the coiled film. We would snap the lid off and on with our thumbs until my mother scolded us. Once, Mehdi spied her camera on the kitchen counter and flicked open its back door where you, where you inserted the amber-colored film, exposing it to the light. He didn't realize his mistake until my mother picked up the new batch. Two pictures contained an eerily white blur like a ghost escaping into a wall. I called to my mother again from the basement. I found it, Ma. Found what? What are you looking for? She shouts down from the top of the stairs. Don't make a mess down there, Sabah. She says this part in her colloquial Arabic, and it's half-heartedly strict. Mehdi and I were mostly well-behaved kids. When necessary, my father had been the disciplinarian, a role most Arab mothers would never allow to be usurped. My mother never clamored or fretted over us. She has always been pleasantly detached. I shift on my knees as nausea sweeps over me. I press my hand against the side of a battered leather sofa and swallow a stream of bile that has swum up my throat. By now, I should have grown accustomed to this nausea, but the specialist insists that side effects of HCG vary from patient to patient. I wonder if the nausea will taste the same when I am finally pregnant, if the bitterness clinging to my teeth that my tongue can't mop away is just as sharp in the first trimester. My hands curl into tight fists, and I close my eyes waiting for it to pass. When I open them, nothing's changed. 
I'm still on the floor and photographs are scattered around me. The social committee at the insurance agency where I work is hosting a who's that Halloween baby contest and the employee with the most correct guesses wins a Starbucks gift card and one of those obnoxiously enormous containers of candy corn that everyone's been coveting all week but nobody actually likes to eat. I'm happy to find a picture that captures a regular American holiday. Shelly, the office manager, will be pleased. Good morning, Miss Morning. She'll greet me tomorrow as I hand her the photograph. My name Sabah means morning, and Shelly has been more than amused by this for the five years I've worked at the agency. I return my haphazardly arranged piles of photographs to the box. I paused to look at some I had only glanced at when I was searching for the Halloween one. A picture slips from a stack, and I pick it up. A blonde and chubby toddler holds the edge of a coffee table and extends her free hand to the camera. She is caught mid-laugh, and I can almost hear the gurgling delight in her open mouth. Her blue eyes twinkle. I turn the photograph over. The only inscription is the year, 1974, and a solitary charming name, Layla. I've never seen this child, and yet her face is uncannily familiar. I feel a lump in my chest. I quickly scatter the piles of photographs I've been ready to drop into the Hoover box, and I begin a new search. I need to find one snapshot of me as a baby, two or three years old, to confirm what my heart already knows is true. My hands are frantic and trembling, and I'm clawing at the piles, pulling one, then pitching it to, the to one side of the floor. At last, I find one, then two, and soon three more appear. My nausea rises again, but I don't care. I gather the photographs and flip through them like I'm dealing cards, searching for the best close-up. Here it is. I'm blithely sitting on my father's lap, and my mother is standing behind us at a table laden with themed birthday plates and cups. There's a round cake with a thick numeral one candle. It's wick lit and golden orange. I'm clapping my hands and looking at someone off camera, a relative, I guess, who wants me to mimic their applause. It's our first house in Chicago before we moved to the south suburbs when Mahdi started high school. I recognize a selection of paisley curtains that my mother hadn't changed in 17 years until my parents put the house up for sale. She bought a solid hunter green set to replace the paisley, her only effort to modernize our house. I take the photograph of the little blonde girl and I hold it up to the one of me. It is unmistakable. She's the white version of me. Both of our noses have a small bulb that betrays the adult one I've grown into with a long bridge and narrow nostrils. Our eyes are deeply set and we have prominent foreheads, not wide and flat, but rounded foreheads that later become the target of cruel jokes like, that's not a forehead, it's a five head. I have olive skin and brown eyes. My hair is curly and dark brown. My mother has left it loose and unfettered in the photograph. These differences are enough to make us complete strangers to, to the undiscerning eyes. Yamma, I call as I jog up the stairs. My mother is seated at the kitchen table, shaping a mixture of lamb and beef into kofta rolls. She has her silver pan ready, aged with grease stains and happy dents, and arranges the meat, filling in spaces with potato wedges and chopped onions. When it is nearly baked, she adds sliced tomatoes, and their juices sizzle at the bottom of the hot pan. Habibdi, turn out the stove before my rice burns, she instructs me. I can feel her gaze on my back, but when I turn around, she pretends to be looking over my shoulder at some invisible object floating there. I know she's worried about me, but I've told her repeatedly that these things sometimes take time, that Nadir and I are seeing one of the best specialists in Illinois. 
She tries hard to be kind about my gradual weight gain from the hormones. Are you still walking every day? She casually asks. Yes, of course, I say curtly. Yamma, who is this? I hold the photograph in front of her face. My mother reaches for it and remembers her fingers are covered in the soft whitish fat of the meat. Oh, Bint Abuki, that's your father's daughter, she says matter-of-factly. This has always been my mother's way. No excitement, no need for getting worked up. There's no change in her tone, no elevation in the tempo of her statement. She may have said, oh, that's your father's old coat, or oh, that's your father's favorite tie. You've seen it, Misha. She continues arranging the ingredients in the pan, her eyes impervious to the raw onions. What are you talking about, Yamma? I say incredulously. Baba's daughter? How? When? My mother pauses and rubs her forehead against her shoulder, careful of the grease still on her hands. I'm sure you knew. The photograph becomes an extension of my hand as I wave it, appalled, attempting to extract a reasonable explanation from my mother. A dull pain throbs in my hip, but I ignore it and concentrate on the picture. Yamma, I have never seen it, her, before. As soon as I refer to the toddler out loud, she becomes three-dimensional, like someone who has just entered the kitchen, interrupting the conversation I'm having with my mother. On any other afternoon, our discussion would, have been, would be laced with questions regarding my treatments. Lately, nothing has been more urgent in our lives until now. I look at the toddler in the photograph, where precise corners seal the entire scene. Inside of it, she's oblivious, unscathed. It was before your father married me, she says, hoping this reassures me and absolves my father of any guilt. I insisted he send for her. I told him I would raise her. Well, I did. What happened? I asked. My voice is like the echo of an unfamiliar sound already fading. Your father refused. He claimed she wasn't his. But I knew better. Your uncle's wife, Wadad, told me all about that white woman. She smirks. Wadad couldn't wait to tell me the details, that spiteful cow. With her elbows, my mother pushes her chair back from the table and washes her hands. She covers the pan with shiny aluminum foil and sets it in the fridge. She'll cook it an hour before my father comes home so that it is steaming hot the way he likes it. I need to sit down. Why didn't he keep in touch with her, I ask settling in a chair while my mother wipes the table down. Like I said, he convinced himself that she wasn't his. He told me the marriage had been for a citizenship. Your grandfather, Sido Ismail, compensated the woman. But I'm fairly certain Sido never knew about the baby. It would have broken his heart. She rinses the dishcloth and reaches for the, co the coffee pot on the granite counter. I need some kahwa. Would you like a cup? I ignore her questions and any superfluous statements my mother uses to cloak this discovery. She has no part in my father's secret past, but I feel she is complicit. Just like the pile of photographs, disorganized, scattered, my mother uncannily leaves things alone. Her home is clean, but unkempt. Laundry is washed daily, and yet it remains unfolded for days or until I grab a hamper of dry towels and my father's woolen socks, folding them while she cooks. I can't believe it, Ma. How could he do that? How could you let him abandon her? My mother is startled by these questions, and for the first time she sees my dismay. Why are you upset, Habibti? Between you and me, she was better off without Baba. Your father was not an easy man when he first came to this country. He seemed to have forgotten his religion and did haram, drinking, gambling. Alhamdulillah, he straightened up before I met him. She sits again at the table and examines her fingernails. 
She scoops bits of meat out of them with her longest pinky nail. The cordless phone rings near my elbow on the table and I pick it up. It's my father calling from his door. Hi, Baba, I say, my voice shaky. I grip the phone tightly to steady my trembling hand. My mother stops picking at her fingernails and watches me. And I'm gonna pause there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that, that was wonderful. Uh, and thank you for having me here. Uh, I really, uh, I'm also honored to echo what uh, Sahar said. Um, this is a wonderful uh, opportunity to celebrate our heritage, but to also celebrate how the narrative and writing and this type of voice and this type of art is very integral to celebrating heritage. So um, that's also just something that uh, I, can't, uh, I can't speak enough. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get started with my reading as well so we can get to the question and answer part. So I'm going to read, because this is a novel, so I'm going to read um, uh, two snippets of the novel. Um, this is a story about, uh, it starts out with a story about a young girl named Leila, and she, her family lives in Palestine, and then they immigrate to the U.S., uh, a lot of the book is about the immigrant experience, um, but it also touches on um, some other issues like domestic violence, uh, things that are really not just uh, specific to any culture, any religion. And it's about her uh, kind of transcendence into uh, out of the, the, the clutter of life or sometimes the clamor of society into finding herself and understanding the mysteries that have surrounded her even before her birth. shorter so I'm gonna <laughs> and this is with heels <laughs> but that's okay uh, I remember Jerusalem with its promises of hope and faith extending as far as the sky hovering above it its visitors its visitors come from all around the world hoping to set foot where the prophets once walked and come close to a spirit of divinity for me, living miles from where Jesus walked, Prophet Muhammad ascended the heavens, and Moses crossed over with the chosen people, was a part of life. As a child, I found its significance to lay in my daily routine. Sentimentalism did not set in until I outgrew my child-sized shoes. The days of my childhood strung together like a sweet melody. It was, not, it was the harmony of routine, the beauty of the anticipated. Children do not fear the unknown. They do not foresee disaster. Sweet oblivion creates the tune. Experience is the discordance that interrupts our innocence, creating the cacophonous ballad of our darkest recollections. The past is not made of ghosts, for ghosts are dead, harmless reminders of what once was. The past is made of monsters that feed on our memories, lurking, waiting to return. My first recollection of Sara was around the time I was three. She was my first friend. My older brother Iyad, Sara, and I were inseparable until he was forbidden to play with us anymore on account of his age. Eleven was considered a man. Childhoods minified on account of war. Iyad was my protector, my savior, and as a young boy, he played father, taking care of the childhood taunts, stopping gossip midair with one look, and offering a reassuring smile in the face of uncertainty. When Sara and I became more independent in play, it was Iyad 
who took us through the forest, took us through the orchard, Iyad who taught us the boundaries of our village, and Iyad who educated us on bullet casings and checkpoints. Iyad, if we live in the unoccupied territory, why are the soldiers still there? Why are they all around us? Layla, unoccupied means they don't live with us, but they still watch us live. After breakfast, I would ascend the stairs of our basement apartment and wait Sara for another day of treasure hunting and hide-and-go-seek. Because Sara was two years older, Mama entrusted her with my care. It was a prodigious responsibility for a 10-year-old girl, but in a conflict-torn country, no one was considered too young. This belief whispered throughout the villages. Children do not exist in the midst of war, and no one expects them to. On this particular day, Saura appeared in a new white dress her mother sewed for her. She was the youngest of eight, and her mother made clothes for the entire family. Her clothes consisted of plenty of hand-me-downs from her three older sisters, but her mother treated her to one or two specially made dresses to call her own. Khalto Samiha was only 35, but Saura's oldest sister, Dina, was already 20 and had just delivered a child of her own. Khalto Samiha promised Saura a new dress if a boy was born, and Sara proudly bragged that she prayed every night for a nephew. When Jamal was born, her mother made her a white knee-length dress with an apron-like front. The extra fabric was a kneaded layer to cover her changing body. We both snickered at the idea of her becoming a woman when all we really wanted to do was play. So now the next uh, snippet is uh, uh, Layla coming to the U.S. She leaves Sara behind, and so now it's her um, recollecting on how her life in Palestine uh, is, is very different than her life in the U.S. and some of the issues her and her family uh, have to, you know, kind of uh, deal with uh, just being immigrants uh, in, a, in a new country. We were also struggling to find a balance. Mama found ways to navigate through American life in her usual amicable way, not complaining about anything. She met our complaints with a reassuring nod or smile. It'll get better. Soon this will be home. You'll make new friends. But I yearned to be back in our village, to return to my childhood with Sara. I held on to her memory, though the light had gone out in her eyes. The energy that dictated our days, the imagination that created the world around us, the spirit that convinced us we were invincible crumbled in one afternoon. The light was as fragile as a match struck at the mercy of the wind. At any moment, a cold gust could extinguish it, just like it had done to Abby. My orchard was replaced with dirty gray sidewalks, lush fruit trees with light posts, and the endless Jerusalem sky with billboards for Marlboro and mac and cheese. We would not connect or communicate with the land, and people were not any easier. Mouths moved with speed, and the letters of their alphabet were chewed up and spit out with ferocity, unintelligible to us. Our tongues, on the other hand, felt heavy, our words slow and painful to articulate. Speaking English was an Olympic feat. My mouth hurt from trying not to roll my R's or to make my P not sound like a B. Even our laughter changed until it could be heard no longer. My brothers were struggling with their own dual identities. It wasn't long before they stepped into trouble. Iyad for his pride and resiliency in his traditions and religion, and Adam for his stubbornness and determination to assimilate quickly into a new culture. Adam was always getting into fights over his accent, and Iyad because of his modesty and mature etiquette. The school responded to both situations similarly by categorizing my brothers as troublemaking Arabs. 
why is it that the Arabs in the school cause trouble? The principal asked mom as he stroked his receding hair. This was a nervous habit my mother became accustomed to during their numerous meetings. It's not just your sons. Is it part of your culture to disrespect authority? Mama, embarrassed by their behavior and even more reserved because of her heavy accent, apologized for all the Arabs in the community. She did not understand her sons anymore. She was losing a point of reference with them. Their taste in food, clothes, music, their expressions, and their mannerisms when they talked all changed. Adam started calling her mom instead of mama, and Iyad, despite his traditional ways, preferred cereal for breakfast. After these conferences, my brothers knew the consequence, a punishment from Baba. It was a lose-lose situation, once again, not accepted at school for being too Arab, not accepted at home for trying to be American. Baba eventually stopped punishing them for their offenses at school. There were far too many. The punishment did not help. And one night, Mama finally broke through to him. Iyad, Adam, and I watched through a crack in our bedroom door. We were certain Baba would have a fit once he found out Iyad and Adam were in trouble at school again. Damn it, Miriam, another meeting. The day after tomorrow, they want both of us there. Baba stood up and began to take off his belt. Mama grabbed his hands, her face a few inches from his. There is no more use in this, Yusuf. Just remember, Miriam, this was your idea. This is what you wanted. He slammed his hand down at the kitchen table to solidify his point. Mama put her hands over his. Yusuf, yes, but it takes time. It takes time for them to get used to everything. It's a different life. It, it took time for you. He slumped into the kitchen chair. Mama sat across from him. Life is better there, better in so many ways. We left our land, and for what? For what? I know, I know. We don't have to keep repeating that, Yusuf. We don't have checkpoints here. Don't you remember how scared Iyad was when he first saw a soldier with an M16 in his hands? Here, we get a call. We have a meeting, fine. But we don't risk a bullet hole through one of our sons. Come on, Yusuf. The schools are still open no matter how bigoted some of his teachers are. Here, we have a chance. Yeah, I remember. His voice became conciliatory, relaxed. He rested his head into the palm of her hand. Mama stroked his hair with her other hand, coaxing him into calming down, helping to ease his tension like one does for a child after a tantrum. Yed's first word was jish, huh? Can you believe it? Only in Palestine would your son's first word be soldier. He bit his lip and his body shook in an attempted laugh, but he wept instead. Mama nodded in agreement and silently wept with him. They wept for things we could not understand. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you both. That was excellent. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Nina Shoman Dejani. I'm one of the members of the Arab Heritage Month Committee and the Assistant Dean in Learning Enrichment and College Readiness. And I'm going to facilitate the Q&A portion. Um, glad you stopped where you did because I was about to start crying. <laughs> <laughs> Very moved and touched and during both of uh, your readings. I was enthralled and so I'm excited to continue the stories in the book, um, which as a reminder, as Suzanne said, are both for sale in the back. So we have some prepared questions that our committee came up with, but I want to open it up to the audience um, first. 
you have any questions for either one of the authors or both of them, um, please go ahead and raise your hand and um, we'll go ahead and call on you and anything you would like to say, comment or question, yes. Personal experience, ooh, I feel special. <laughs> uh, for both of you, what was like the motivation of your stories and your short stories? Like, was it personal experience or just like, like issues in the world or, I don't know, I'm just curious, because they're really good. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm a teacher, but I have a hard time following directions. So when I was doing my MFA work, I thought the assignment was to fictionalize an actual account. So parts of that story are true. And um, I think I always jokingly say that my sisters are always nervous when they come to these readings. They're actually in the front here, my cousin Susanna, my cousin Henna, because I think they tend to recognize, if not actual people, the experiences. So I write about what I know, you know, and of course I, in the fictionalization process, a new kind of truth emerges, which I think makes it a lot more universal too, which I really appreciate. Uh, I also lived in the Middle East, so those stories are based on experiences there too. Okay, so I have a, a little bit of a different experience. I have always wanted to be a writer um, but growing up in a Middle Eastern family um, <laughs> where everyone went into engineering and medicine, um, when I announced to my parents uh, that I wanted to be a writer, they're like, that's great, but you need a job where you can have insurance and a paycheck. And so, you know, keep writing, but you need to get like a job job. And if you know anything about writing, and you know the ri writing is a full-time job, but I understood. They didn't want me to be the starving writer. So I, I went into uh, English and I became a teacher, which I absolutely love, and I love literature and I love language. Uh, and then I started writing um, uh, Secrets Under the Olive Tree like a year or two after I finished college. But then like life happens, right? I had one child, then I had two children, and then I had three children, then I went back for my master's. And um, I reached a crossroad where I, Beca just because of the way, the nature of my brain, I was like looking at law school, my a PhD, and it was like all these things on my bucket list that I really want to do. And then I saw my manuscript and I was like, okay, I if I really, if this is the dream that I've always wanted to do, I want to do this. Now based on um, the, the uh, content of the book is, is purely fiction. Um, similarities, and I think a lot of contemporary writers do this with their first novel such as like Khaled Husseini and Amy Tan and uh, Jumbalahari. And if you look at contemporary writers, uh, your first book, you the setting is comfortable to write what you know. So um, you know, uh, I'm Palestinian, I live in Chicago, the book is uh, based in Chicago. So in that sense, I do draw from that. Uh, but I really just wanted to write a story about human struggle and resilience. And I, I knew I wanted my characters to be Arab. Um, I, I knew I wanted my characters to be Palestinian. But like for my second novel, my characters aren't Palestinian. Um, they're Arab, um, and my second book is based in New York. Uh, it's multi-generational. Uh, it's based in, you know, parts of it are in Egypt. And so in that sense, uh, I still like the, the creativity and the imagination of being able just to write 
a story that people will want to read. Uh, and I really go back to Vladimir Nabokov's idea about what good literature is, and that's literature that inspires, um, literature that entertains, and literature that educates. So I try to, like, you know, that that's kind of like the, the, the lens that I like to write in. Very good question. Thank you. Musical microphones, or uh, musical instead of musical chairs. Okay, any more questions from the audience or comments? Don't be shy. Do we have any as aspiring writers in the audience that have questions? If we did have some aspire aspiring writers in the audience or that may watch this footage, what is some advice that you would give? Um, or is there anything that you learned along the way that you wish somebody had told you or had given you a heads up? Because publishing a book is a lot of work. You know, writing is one thing, but also going through the process. So what is some advice that you would like to give to aspiring writers? Um, I think my biggest uh, piece of advice would be to uh, stick with it and not abandon it. I think, uh, I've, I feel like we are kindred spirits, Naveen, because it was that same experience of, uh, just because I earned straight A's, my parents thought I'd be a doctor, a lawyer, and when I told them I was going to be a teacher, because I still had not articulated that I, I wanted to be a writer, my dad's like, but you'll be a principal, right? <laughs> so I think if you're passionate about anything that you do that is art, you really need to stick with it, stand by it. But I've also learned you need to support other writers. So uh, in this day and age where social media really has uh, just elevated incredible writers of color. Um, I'm so inspired by their works. In fact, I'm mostly a fiction writer, but I've been reading mostly poetry uh, by women and by particularly Arab uh, female writers. And uh, I think we need to support each other because you know the industry is not always inclusive. We're getting better. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's probably my biggest thing is if you're going to write, you need to read as much as you can because there's so many things, uh, beautiful you know, uh, things to to steal, to adopt from other really great artists. I think that's excellent advice. And I, I, to just add to that, I would say um, understanding that writing is a process. Uh, it's, not, it's not a quick thing. You don't just go home and write a book um, or go home and write a collection of short stories. Uh, understanding that it's a journey that you're going on. And um, the editing process to you know, prepare yourself for the idea that uh, you know, write the first draft. Don't try to uh, you know. I think uh, oftentimes people write something and they look back and they're like, "This is no good," and then they just like you know toss it. The idea of like finish the project, then go back and then start the editing process before you even write. Um, uh, like Sahar said, you you need to read, read as much as possible from the genre that you want to write. And, but just then make sure that you develop your own voice. You know, and, and to understand that no one can write like you because there's only one you. So embrace that. And if it's different, so be it, right? Uh, and it's, it's very um, you know, subjective. Uh, so you'll, f you'll find the audience for what you want to write um, if you own it and if, if it's your real authentic natural voice that's coming through. That's great, I thank think you. Anne Lamott talked about shitty first drafts, yeah. by the way. So yes, there are plenty yes, of those. Kip, I'll go ahead and um, repeat your question if the mic doesn't work. So go ahead. 
Well, thank you both for kicking off Arab Heritage Month with, uh, with us uh, this month. So I have a question I'm going to ask kind of individually. Um, could you share a little bit about the continuation of your story and did you ever meet your half-sister? I was just kind of curious and, and, and let me go ahead and ask the second question oh. you kind of bounce, bounce off. And then um, for you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the state of the Palestinian community in Chicago. Um, a lot of us obviously um, are not Palestinian and kind of curious about where you see it. First generation, second generation, third generation Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So do you mean the real story behind the story? Yes. No, we haven't. So yeah, um, and actually the story, it becomes about how Sabah, the narrator, uh, is struggling with fertility and just kind of imagines this, this sister and perhaps maybe the easiness of her life, which I don't think it's always, you know, uh, the grass is always greener. Uh, so no, that has not come to fruition. And Kip, uh, that's a whole event in and of itself, the yes. Palestinian community in yeah. Chicago. But if you have any comments about your experience as a Palestinian in sure. Chicago, feel free to comment. Um, I would say, you know, when we think about the Palestinian community in Chicago, uh, we could talk about uh, all very, you know, many immigrant communities in Chicago. And one of the things to keep in mind is the Palestinian community in Chicago uh, is nuanced, right? There's no like set Palestinian family. Uh, there's no set example. Um, there isn't even one set ideology. Uh, whether or not, you know, if we look at just even uh, faith-based, if you're talking about, you know, uh, Christian Palestinians or Muslim Palestinians, and then even within, even if we divide by faith-based, uh, within just those uh, groups, then there are other groups, and uh, it's very nuanced. From my own uh, experience, um, I was uh, born in J um, Jerusalem. My family did immigrate here when I was um, five. Uh, I'm one of I'm four girls and one boy. Uh, my father always prided himself on, you know, when people said things like, oh, well, why don't you have another son? There's always this idea of, like, if you have one son, you should have two or three or <laughs> ten or something. And he always said, I don't need another son. I have four daughters, and I have one son, and that's, like, you know, good enough. Uh, and one of the things that um, I also uh, attribute to my parents um, and, and their mindset and, and like-minded Palestinians was the emphasis on education. Um, it was not a question whether or not we were going to college. Uh, that was something that was always instilled in us. School was always very important. Uh, and the idea of having a voice was always very important. Uh, I always tell people, this is me at my biggest and baddest self. Like, this is me at, like, my, just, like, I'm massive right now in terms of, I was a very small, thin child. And my, uh, you know, and, and if I got picked on at school, my father would say, but you have a voice. And he's like, you need to use it. He's like, no one can out-talk you. No one can out-argue you. He's like, you see these arguments we have at home? Do this with other people. <laughs> and he kind of instilled in me like this like mini lawyer where I knew at a very young age how to advocate for myself because my father was like, you don't need to be tall. You don't need to be big. You just need to have a really good voice. Um, and then like my voice sounds like this, which is like a 10-year-old girl. But then the words, the words is what he meant, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Any other questions or comments from the audience? Yes. Um, are both of those books the first books that you uh, decide tried to publish or decided to publish, or were there books beforehand that maybe didn't come through to fruition? Good question. That is a good question. Um, so 
this was the uh, work of my MFA at Columbia College, and for a few years after, I tried to shop them around. Uh, agents are not particularly excited about short story collections, so I knew that would be difficult, so I just sort of rode the contest circuit and came close. I was a semi-finalist finalist. And then I discovered Willow Books, which is a publishing company out of Detroit devoted to writers of color, and I won. So it was this you know, incredible journey with them, and uh, I felt like, good, you know, this is exactly the home, you know, that, that these stories need. Uh, so I guess um, I'm also kind of fortunate because uh, students that I know, peers, they usually will shelve their MFA work, and mine actually got out there in the world, so that, that's pretty cool. Um, but I am working on uh, a second novel, so I have one novel that's actually being considered by agents as we speak, so let's hope uh, uh, only. <laughs> that's like good vibes. Um, so yeah. Um, I would say I'm equally as fortunate. This was my first manuscript, and I really started with like you know, kind of like that starry-eyed thing. Like when someone says like I want to be an actor or I want to be, uh, you know, I want to play for the NBA, and uh, I, I, you know, just like this thing like oh, I want to write a book, and you know, like this is what I've always wanted to do. Um, I also attribute it to this idea when people are having their first child. And they're just like so excited, and they have no idea. <laughs> 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 they have no idea what's going to happen after this child's born. Um, so it, that was it. Like I wrote this book, I worked hard on it, and then I just started to query and send it out, and was really fortunate that I had, up and I was sending it out to publishers and agents, and just kind of like send it out, send it out, and see what happens. I, I sent it out like I was fishing, you know, like I was just like, oop, let's see in this big ocean, you know, who's gonna grab this and I had a, a wonderful um, publisher out of Orange County, uh, California, uh, Nortia Press, and he uh, really is a, an advocate for um, kind of like raising awareness about global issues and he doesn't publish much fiction but he really like believed in this and said, you know, I really want to publish this and, and he did. And I just thought that that was like the normal thing that happens to people. Like I didn't even know that that was like so amazing at the time. Um, where like people are like, oh, I'm on my fifth manuscript and I'm trying to get this one published. And so I, I also feel very fortunate. Um, I also, same thing, Idoli, I have a second, <laughs> a second <laughs> novel right now that's being considered by a few agents. And so it, it, it's a very, it's, it's a long, hard process. Um, and there's also, you, you reach a point where you don't know, you might get an agent and the agent has a different vision than you. And that's happened to me uh, before. Um, or, you know, this, it's not what they're looking for, or something else is in right now in publishing, and so this, this is what they want. So it's also like finding the agent uh, that you and that agent can work together, and it's almost like a marriage, because you, you envision, at least, I, and I'm sure you feel the same way, you want this to be a long-lasting relationship and this writing career to continue. This is not something that you just did as a hobby one day. This is something that is a, uh, a career choice, a life choice that you want to continue with. Other questions or comments? This side of the room is a little quiet. <laughs> Do we have any questions or comments? No, just taking it all in. You have a question in the back? Yes, Suzanne, just come in with the mic. Hi, guys. <laughs> uh, I, was in I was in Australia when I was young, Hawaii, England, of course, America, and so many different states in America, but I never really see you guys on other 
another state or another place. So my question is, what make not what makes you guys choose Chicago? Why I only see you guys mostly in Chicago? Like, I'm South Korean, but if you see go if you go California, you will see a lot of Korean population. Mm -hmm. The reason why we choose that area is because it's closer, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure why you guys choose here. I'm not saying Chicago is bad, but I'm I'm just wondering <laughs> why, you know. It's a beautiful city. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but. Are you referring um, to the Arab community in general, that there's a large Arab community in the area? Okay. Question, would you like to um, comment? I mean, both of your families settled here. Mm -hmm. I'm a transplant from California, and people ask me all the time, why are you here? Um, I have my reasons, too. It is a beautiful city and marriage and kids and all of that. But your family settled here, and then you grew up here, right? So maybe you can t speak to that. Well, I think generally speaking, and then Nadine um, can correct this, um, Arabs stayed after the World Fair, you know, at the turn of the last century. Mm -hmm. So they just sort of, uh, you know, became merchant. And I think those, uh, you know, that, that particular, uh, the nature of merchants and became stores and uh, they really thrived. So historically, mm -hmm. I think we, mm -hmm. we have very deep roots mm -hmm. in, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think the other, um, I think most, like in terms of when you look at the immigrant experience, um, immigrants generally tended to go to big cities. And so I know with my parents, I mean, because I've said, you know, why Chicago? And they're like, well, it was either Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. I mean, they just kind of named, we just heard like that those are where opportunities are. You go to a big city and you're going to uh, be able to network with people. You're going to be able to meet people. So there wasn't a, like a specific reason. Um, we had family in Chicago already. And I think that just, you know, made it an easier transition to come to Chicago. Uh, so I think that's why we uh, ended up in Chicago, which is a beautiful city. But sometimes I'm like, you know, California sounds really nice <laughs> sometimes. That's <laughs> beautiful. Although I think Detroit or Dearborn, uh, Dearborn still beats us in terms oh, of yeah. largest mm -hmm. Arab yeah, population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So quick history lesson. Arab Americans started to immigrate to this country in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. There are several large hubs of the population throughout the country. Uh, very large in terms of population and numbers, um, Southern California, New York, New Jersey, mm -hmm. Dearborn, um, Chicago obviously is a large one, but it's like in the top six. Um, very large Palestinian community here specifically. Um, and I think this was already mentioned, you know, people tend to come where they have a family member, a cousin, they know someone, and I think that's true for many other um, immigrant communities. So thank you. Good question. Other questions or comments? Yes. Hi, um, so I'm an aspiring writer too, and it's really hard sometimes to sit down and like concentrate and try to like write what I'm feeling. So how do you guys transfer your emotions and like your feelings onto paper? Like what helps you do that? That's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. So are you a poet, first of all? Okay, so that might be also a different experience, I think, maybe than, than fiction writers. Um, it First of all, it's it's hard to find time, right? And especially if you're a full-time student or if you have a full-time job. Um, I don't have any particular habit, but I would recommend you just trying to get at least one thing down, you know, on the page. Um, I think I don't battle too much 
emotionally because again i'm just i'm making up stuff right so i don't need to worry about in fact i try to separate you know maybe the emotional so that um i have a clearer picture you know of my characters uh so yeah i think um i know some people who might thrive on being in a particular emotional state and that sort of pouring into their papers. Uh, that hasn't really been my experience. I think I'm probably more level-headed when I come to the page. Is she a former student? She, uh, I spoke at her school a couple years back and oh, yes. Nice. Um, and we've connected before. Um, so I would say uh, kind of to uh, echo what um, Sahar said, I think it, when you, I carried around like a little notebook and anytime like I was like captivated by a phrase, a word, I, I know it sounds really cheesy, but it, it really is a way to, so when you're feeling with kind of those emotional things or something really strikes you or you have a, you know, all of a sudden you have this beautiful image in your head or, or a haunting image in your head, I would write those in a notebook. But I would agree, uh, writing, I don't know how other people work, but I need it, I need to be level-headed. I need things to be calm. I can't like start writing in the midst of like chaos, like you know, like if my you know dishwasher's overflowing or you know <laughs> if the kids are screaming or running around, it's not like, like I'm gonna sit down and write. Like it, I have to take care of everything, and I have to. You have to have a sacred like time and place that you write, and honor that time and place. Um, writing, I, I know that this might take all like the, the, the you know, romantic, you know, like ideas we have in our head about writing, but writing becomes like a job in the sense that you need that time, that place, and that structure. Um, but it's like a beautiful job, right? Like you're doing something that you love and that you enjoy, uh, but you do need to, you know, give that to yourself. And I would say really importantly, take care of yourself. You have to be well and you have to be rested, and you have to kind of have that mindset going into it so you could really uh, you know, articulate those ideas and those emotions on the page. Great questions. Suzanne? So I just want to add to that and put a plug in for the Counseling and Career Development Center where I work because one of the things that we do is we help students with managing your time, how to minimize distractions, how to beat the procrastination habit, those things you were saying like, how do you set that time aside? How do you uh, sit down and focus and concentrate? These are all things that we can um, help you work through, help any student work through. Um, and the other thing is look into our creative writing classes here on campus as well. Um, and if you need help looking at those courses to help support your interest um, and your creative process, then come see us for that too. Questions or comments? Well, I have one, it's actually up here um, on the board, but I'll just go ahead and repeat it. So what have you learned about yourself through your writing? Um, it's obviously been a very important part of your life. You know, when you started writing till now, do you see some type of progression? What have you learned through this process? I think for me, uh, I feel a double burden maybe. Uh, the burden of, first of all, being a good writer, right, in craft, but being a so-called hyphenated writer, also uh, worrying about what my community is going to think of my work and, uh, you know, being careful not to pander, you know, to particular audiences. So that's been a balancing act because I want to be a really good writer, um, but um, I also want, I feel a responsibility, you know, uh, I suppose. 
But what I've learned is if I'm not true to myself, so if I, if I don't go with these creative impulses that have created basically these stories, then the writing won't be good no matter what. And, and, and I'm just not going to be consumed by responsibility and worry. So I, I really have, I think, yeah, sort of stuck to my guns and sort of, uh, you know, let that, that sort of angst go just so I can produce what I hope is going to be something that speaks, if not to everybody, to one person, you know, and, and maybe it's relevant or not, but I think it was also uh, Nabokov who said, you don't have to relate to every single thing to a right. I mean, uh, you can obviously connect with the piece uh, because it could be a window into a world and maybe not necessarily a mirror. I think to, to echo a little bit of, of what Sahar said as well, yes, there is that idea that you realize as a, uh, as a, a minority writer, right, as a, as a, uh, a woman, as an, an Arab-American woman, too, that sometimes there is this kind of expectation of what your writing is going to be, and you, you could either kind of cater to what people are expecting from you or to be authentic to your own stories and to your own voice. I think what I learned the most about myself um, through writing is that I'm much tougher than I thought, you know? Um, because yeah, that, that feeling of sticking to your guns and doing what you believe uh, and not writing because you're trying to, you know, like you said, cater to anybody, but writing because uh, these stories, they don't have to be applicable to everyone's life, but yet they're still applicable to life. And that uh, in, in these stories, you don't have to be Arab, you don't have to be American, you don't have to be from Chicago, you don't have to be a female, but that, you know, universal, there are these issues that are universal. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I really, has always touched me is knowing that my reader base has been uh, young people, uh, young people that could be, you know, 15, 16 years old, but then I, you know, I had a, know, 65-year-old, you know, uh, Bulgarian man who read my book and was like, I really like this. And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. So th that idea that, you know, you're, you don't have to have this specific narrow audience that you're creating this work and you kind of just like let it go out into the world and, and see where it goes. To kind of go back to my metaphor of a child, <laughs> you know, you have this child and then you send it out into the world and, and then you just hope it does good things and, and reaches as many people um, as it can. So. Awesome, thank you. Other comments or questions? Okay. Um, well, we have a little bit of time and um, we do wanna leave time for the students to purchase books and to come up and maybe speak to you individually as well, because sometimes students just wanna talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, would you like to leave us with some words if someone was to walk out today and you want them to remember one thing, whether it be about writing, about their future writing, about your book or um, yourself and your work? Anything else that you would like to add? Um, oh, I was going to go ahead and get in my teacher voice and project. Um, I think now more than ever, we need stories. Every single person has a story. So you, you need to ask the person 
who you might be curious about and I think that person might be ready you know to share something about himself or herself and I, I think that's probably the best way to bridge differences you know there's something so extraordinary about stories you know um, and and we need to tell them whatever that looks like so if it's not going to be something formal like a book there are so many different ways you know that we can express ourselves and again with this age of technology it can be in your own blog it could be a podcast you know you can you can do things on social media so yeah we, we need to tell our stories definitely you know tell your stories um, and and find your niche I would say, you know, whether it's poetry, whether it's uh, short story writing, whether it's novels, um, but I would say anything in the arts, um, you know, this idea of don't underestimate the power of the arts, uh, because, you know, the art is able to take, you know, what would have looked like a statistic and, and put a human face to it and put human emotion to it. Uh, and I think sometimes, um, and, and, and I'm not trying to generalize, but you know, we talked about like a, our parents wanting us to be doctors and getting real jobs, and this idea that sometimes the arts is something that people are like, oh, that's a hobby, that's for fun. Uh, but you know, if we look at the, if we look at history, I mean, if you look at like the, the Harlem Renaissance, and it, you know, if you look at this idea that an, an art is also a movement, uh, because it's able to connect to people in ways that. Uh, you know, articles or statistics or, or, or just, uh, you know, sometimes news events cannot. Uh, so find your niche and how you can contribute to the arts. Uh, and don't, you know, don't ever feel like your story is not worthy enough or not good enough. Uh, just the fact that it is your own makes it unique in itself. Uh, and, you know, go for it. Thank you so much. Um, I do have to say, personally, I was inspired by you. I really got to get that dissertation published, <laughs> not let it collect dust. Um, and I really appreciate all of the words of encouragement you've given our students, because maybe one of you can be up here you know, next year or the year before or in a few years from now doing the same thing. And I'm sure Troy would be happy to help you plan that event along with us. Um, I do want to once again reiterate what Suzanne has said in the beginning. Thank you to our Arab Heritage Month committee members and thank you to the library. The library has been very welcoming um, to us every year for Arab Heritage Month, but also throughout the year as the Arab Student Union, Muslim Student Association, and many other college um, committees and student groups host events here on campus. So we do really appreciate the space and that we have that support here. I also want to thank once again Dr. Meha Suesta Babna. Um, always a great supporter, brings her Arabic classes, which are very popular here on campus, to the library when we have these awesome events. Um, and also um, Mr. Kip Kozad, my colleague from my department who also teaches history of the Middle East um, and has lived in the Middle East and um, comes to us with his questions about the Palestinian community with a lot of love. Um, and we'll continue those conversations, Kip. And to any other instructors that offered extra credit or encouraged their students to come, we really appreciate that. You know, this event uh, kicked off Arab Heritage Month and we have lots of fun and great events coming up. On each one of your chairs, you should have found a flyer and if you didn't um, get one, we do have some extras. So please continue to support our events. Tomorrow, here, same place, same time, 11 a.m., um, we have our No Ban, No Wall, Standing with Immigrant Communities panel event. Um, we will also have students on that panel as well as representatives from community organizations. 
on Thursday, the Arab Student Union is hosting a Teach Me How to Debka workshop in the U building. It's going to be lots of fun, something to try out. Um, you're going to learn a little bit about Palestinian Debka, Iraqi Debka. So join in in the fun. You don't have to know how to do the dances, so learn how to do the dance. And it's just going to be a fun activity for an hour in the U building, 2 p.m., U111. Um, we also have a bake sale that's going on. Um, that's going to come up on the 16th, so look out for the Arab Student Union, um, 11.30 to 1.30 in the Student Street in U building area. And then to close out Arab Heritage Month, we have an awesome event. Um, MSA and ASU are um, co-sponsoring a falafel sandwich sale. And then we will have in the U building um, the very talented oud player Ronnie Malley coming as part of our uh, mosaics programming, who will be playing music as well. And there's also the Helping Hands Drive um, that is going on. So you may see boxes throughout the buildings. And MSA is taking the lead on this, along with um, many other student organizations, including ASU. Um, there are other clubs involved as well, the Political Action Committee as well. Um, so please support, um, drop some items in the boxes to help local Syrian refugees. Lots of awesome stuff going on. And then of course, once again, shukran to our, um, to our authors. Let's give them an awesome big round of applause. <laughs>